in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Two brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and my good friend John Flack is not here with me today. He's still working on a time machine. As I told you last time, he's looking for some plutonium to power his time machine, and it's something that you can pick up at an ordinary 7-Eleven in today's time, but he's unfortunately traveled to a time when he can't get it so easily, so he's stranded somewhere back in time, and he'll be back in present day, hopefully by next week, for the Christmas episode. So it'll be a Christmas miracle to have him back. Good news, though. Friend of the show and getting to be a familiar voice for you guys, Brian Fry is here to help me co-pilot this episode. Brian, how are you doing today, man? All fantastic, Russ, and evening, everybody. Well, uh, and good news, also, first-time guest on the show, something new and exciting, to bring some legitimacy to the show, some professional insights, we have today Mark Gardner with us. Mark, say hello to the listeners. Hello, hello. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mark, give the people at home a little idea for yourself. Uh, What do you do? You're here in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, I live in Pittsburgh. Uh, I am currently working on my PhD, and I teach some college courses as well. Uh, one of those courses this semester is a film, art film class, um, and I teach some composition as well. So I'm just excited to be here and happy to talk about a great film. That's awesome. So, so we get a little feel for where you are with your movies and love of movies. I'm going to ask you a couple of quick ones. What are some general kinds of movies you like? What are your comfort zones? So I prefer anything that's going to let me think um, as opposed to letting me escape. So anything that is cerebral and gives me some some good nuggets to chew on, I'm, I'm all about it. Um, I enjoy movies that critique reality and our relationship with reality. Um, anything that connects to any social problems or just anything that makes me want to keep watching um, more so than movies that allow me to escape the okay mu- the mundane <laughs> so uh that and that's an interesting that's the first one of the first uh, people who have not just said sci-fi and horror so that's that's exciting <laughs> okay. um, um that's uh that's very good news and so if you had a time machine and you got to go back in time and watch one movie with a crowd of people in the theater at at that time when it came out what movie would you want to see and experience with people when it came out that's a great question. I would probably have to say, well, science fiction, here I go. Um, but I would have to say Star Wars A New Hope. Um, I'm really into the idea that science fiction has a origin story, and I would love to experience more of that. So that would probably be my choice. Absolutely. You, you, would, you would know that everybody is about to have their minds blown. You'd just be like, just looking around. Exactly. Room. I would just watch. I would just watch all of the... All, all of the gapped uh gaped mouths and um yes i would enjoy watching the the uh amazingness take place <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't ruin it for people to be like it's like 
That guy's that guy's dad. Absolutely not. No, <laughs> I am not a spoil. I do not enjoy spoilers whatsoever. Um, so if you had a uh, if you had to pick one, who is your favorite director? Well, interestingly enough, um, if I had to choose an American director, I probably would choose one of uh, my favorite is Mike Nichols. So today um, is very fitting and I'm excited that this film was chosen uh, because Mike Nichols has had a great career or had a great career um, so he would be my choice I have some other backups um, but Mike Nichols work stands out to me the most that is good because today we're gonna do one of his movies and uh, lastly if you had to teach uh, sorry since you teach film uh, how has it changed the way that you watch movies and or has it yeah, um, I wouldn't say that necessarily changes how I watch it. Um, I, I really enjoy introducing younger kids, which sounds awful, um, makes me sound very old, but I enjoy introducing younger people to new and exciting narratives that they would not have been used to before. Um, movies that I grew up watching that they have never heard of, and um, it actually, I think it would boggle the mind uh, to think how many uh, older movies students have no idea even exist. So, and when I say old, I mean five years ago old. So um, I just enjoy getting to see uh, some of my favorites through fresh eyes. Um, that's probably my favorite part about teaching. It is fun to be the introducer of, like if you uh, show somebody, a, I like music a lot. So if I hand somebody a band that they've never heard before, and it's old hat to me, but just because they're younger and they wouldn't have gone in their ear at that time, it is it is cool to see that, and I would imagine it's a similar feeling. Yeah, and I I really love it when students hate movies that I love. That's actually <laughs> one of my favorites because it actually means that they are passionate about something enough to fight me on something. So I always in, enjoy those conversations, um, and I'll fight right back with them. So that's good. Yeah. That's. That's quite literally why, like, 100% of why I love my job. Because all I get to do is be like, you need to read this. You need to watch this. Yes. You need to listen. <laughs> so uh, one last one is, uh, what is the last movie you have seen? Well, I'm pretty boring in that I am finishing out the semester right now. So most of the most recent movies I've seen have been for the class that I'm teaching. Um, the last one I assigned that we watched was Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, which Guillermo del Toro from 2006, I believe. Um, maybe not that old, um, but Pan's Labyrinth. And Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was the film before that. So those are the last two I watched, um, and I rewatch them, even though I've seen them um, at least a dozen times already, but I always rewatch them before I talk about them in class. So, yeah, those are my most recent ones. Those are good ones to return to, I think. Mm -hmm. So now that we've got a feel for Mark... Why don't we reintroduce the movie today? This is going to be The Graduate. It came out in 1967. It grossed $104.6 million, according to Wikipedia. Its budget was $3 million, so it was quite lucrative. It was number one in the box office that year, and it placed ahead of The Jungle Book. And IMDb gives us a rating of 8.0. 
The Rotten Tomato uh, critics give it 89% and the audience gives it 90%. So this is a well-liked movie. It is an Academy Award winner. Mike Nichols took home the Academy Award for Best Director. It got nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Adapted Screenplay and Cinematography. It did not win any of those, but it's still very accomplished. And time usually wins out because AFI came back and rated this seventh as the AFI's 100 Years of Movies in 1998. In 2000, they knocked it down to ninth and laughs, uh, 100 Years of Laughs, that is. So it's the ninth funniest movie of all time, they said. AFI also said that this was sixth on the 100 Years of Best Songs in Movies. In 2002, AFI came back and called this number 52 in the 100 Years of Passions. It's 42nd in the 100 Years of Best Movie Quotes with plastics. <laughs> Just plastics. And then 63rd with okay. uh, Mrs. Robinson. Are you trying to seduce me? It is a well-regarded movie. It's held up well throughout history. So let's uh, find out your experience with this one. Mark, you had seen this one before? Yes, no? What were your thoughts coming in? Yeah, so I first watched this uh, film back when Netflix was shipping DVDs. Um, so this was one of the, my... I remember getting on my Netflix queue and putting this towards the top um, shortly after I was introduced to Mike Nichols' work and then finding out that he won the Academy Award for it, I was quick to want to watch it. So that kind of dates it back to when... Netflix was a DVD service. Pretty wild to think that in the future... You can actually still do that. Yeah. Can you? I had no idea. Yeah. Yes. I'm I'm one of the few stalwart DVD shipped Netflix people. Analog indeed. (laughs) And uh, it's kind of funny to think that, you know, you always tell tell people about going to the rental store, but it is kind of funny that small chapter where you're going to tell people, it's just like, and then when the rental stores went under, we used to wait in the mail for it. True. I had Blockbuster and Netflix simultaneously because I couldn't get enough. And then Blockbuster streaming or Blockbuster shipping services ended pretty soon after they began. They did. Yeah. And you'll also add, and it wasn't even robots who delivered them back then. It was a real man (laughs) who came around with a bag and paper. So, uh, Brian, (laughs) what were your expectations coming in for this one? Had you seen this one before? I had never seen this movie. It was one of those good intention, like, I will watch this one day and just never got around to it. So when you needed, uh, needed some stand in, I was like, yep, I'll do it. And how'd it go? I, I'm going to disappoint a lot of people tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to this, to this point, I've had, uh, fairly glowing reviews for everything I watched. Um, I did not like this movie. I've got a lot of reasons why I didn't like this movie. And almost none of them. Yeah. Almost none of them have anything to do with why everybody loves the movie. (laughs) So I'm curious to find out more later. Um, It it, it is a, it is a very, um, it might just be me kind of thing. I'm willing to stand on the small island. We'll find out. And this is actually an interesting story that may parallel mine because when I saw this the first time I was in college, uh, my wife, girlfriend at the time, Mary, recommended it. She had seen it several times before, loved the soundtrack, enjoyed it. And she said, I think you're going to like this. It's on the AFI top laughs list because we were going through a lot of the greatest funny movies and greatest thrills movies and greatest of all time movies. Uh, we had little highlighters, again, that we would, like, scratch them off as we saw them back in the rental store days. Awesome. Wonderful. Nice. And uh, a project that is still always ongoing. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we uh, we saw it, and she thought I was going to love it. And I got out of there thinking, yeah, I don't know. This isn't really 
this is ranked really highly on the funny list, and I didn't think it was that funny, and I, I'm not sure how I felt about this. And I, I left with really built-up hopes coming in. I was deflated. I came back later and saw it, and I liked it a little better, and I, I kind of hit a neutral feeling on it. And coming back this time and watching it a couple of times for preparing for this, it clicked. I don't know if it's because I got older and I'm in a different place in my life and I can uh, assess it differently being that I'm not in college and I've actually gone through the uh, transition period of coming out, but uh, I now like this movie a whole lot. So I took a transformational journey where I kind of started off in your shoes, Brian. So I don't know. I, uh, I, again, um, I'm not setting off just a poo poo on this whole movie, but there is an, a very large possibility that I did not laugh once. You know, I was really film. surprised when I was re-looking over this to find out that people called it a comedy. I did not remember it as a comedy. The I first time I watched it, well, the second, this, the second and third time I've watched it, I started to to laugh, but I did not remember it funny. I remembered it as a very pensive and very dry movie. So I call it a drama first. With it has comedic elements, yeah. in it. Um, and I did laugh more this this time mm-hmm. than I had any other time. And I think it's kind of uh, an interesting, going back to Star Wars, where I showed my friend from China Star Wars for the first time ever. And we would laugh when C-3PO and R2-D2 were bickering with each other. And like mm-hmm. he'd be like, why are you guys laughing? Like, there's no joke here. Right. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think it's something that as you familiarize yourself with the characters and the, acting, the actors and their mannerisms and stuff that are done, something about just making you happy makes you laugh a little bit and then i was just and then it was an interesting question it caught me off guard why am i laughing this isn't like knee slapping funny right but like i just like them and they make me happy yeah so it was an interesting question to be asked i don't know that i satisfied him in the answer either he's just like i don't think i get it the same (laughs) so this is the time where i have to warn everybody we're going to talk about the graduate it's a movie that's been around for a long time i hope that you've seen it and we're going to talk about it and spoil it and if you haven't seen it i recommend you pause this go watch the movie and come back and join us again i do recommend watching it we'll be back after these messages thank you for seeing me and benjamin now please sit down i think i should be going now mrs robbins thank you sit down benjamin now play the retro movie round table for me Oh no, oh no, Mrs. Robinson, oh no. What's wrong, Benjamin? You listen to the podcast, you must have formed some kind of an opinion. If you don't mind me saying so, Mrs. Robinson, this evening's getting a little strange, and I'm sure that Mr. Robinson will be home any minute now. My husband will be back quite late. Now how about giving the Retro Movie Roundtable a rating and review with me? I have a lot on my mind right now, and I'd like to go home and think about my future. Benjamin, if you won't do me a simple favor, then I don't know what. I'd rather not, Mrs. Robinson. Benjamin, I want you to know that the Retro Movie Roundtable is available anytime by downloading it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts. Mrs. Robinson, get away from that door. Give the show a rating and review to help improve and promote the show. Do you understand that, Benjamin? Yes, yes, let me out. If you find the show enjoyable, please give it a like on Facebook and write to the show at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Oh my Christ. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're going to get into spoiling this movie at this point. And Mark, do you want to give us a rundown on what happens in The Graduate? I sure will. So the story follows Ben, who's played by Dustin Hoffman, as he returns to a Southern California home after graduating with honors from um, an unknown prestigious East Coast University, where he also was a track and field star athlete. 
Um, he arrives at his childhood home to find a well-attended party being thrown in his honor. The welcoming fanfare that his family and friends show him is too much for Ben to absorb. As, he slowly get, as we slowly get acquainted to Ben, it becomes clear that he has intensely mixed feelings about the, uh, the upcoming direction that his life is moving. Um, the early scenes of the film center around Ben drifting through existence. There is little time for Ben to become reacquainted with the person that his family wants him to be. So Ben quickly removes himself from any conversations pertaining to his schooling and his undetermined future. Uh, ben cannot fully grasp the reality where he will be able to be happy and successful at the same time. So at the party, Ben doesn't necessarily have the energy to produce everyone's version of himself, so he tolerates the mundane conversations and inquisitions of people from his past in a way that shows his ambivalence for their expectations of him. Uh, the narrative takes a turn when at the party he reconnects with Mrs. Robinson, played by the sultry Anne Bancroft. Uh, Mrs. Robinson is the mother of a girl who Ben went to high school with. Initially, Ben assumes Mrs. Robinson to be similar to the shadows of people invited to the party by his parents, but eventually Mrs. Robinson corners Ben in his bedroom and seduces him. Ben, in disbelief of this seduction, asks Mrs. Robinson to leave him alone, but instead Mrs. Robinson asks Ben to take her home because her husband abandoned her at the party with no way home. Upon delivering Mrs. Robinson to her house, Ben is promptly thrust back into an aggressive seduction routine by Mrs. Robinson, where she ultimately promises to make herself available to Ben should he ever want to take her up on that offer. So the next 30 minutes or so of the film tell the story of Ben and Mrs. Robinson's affair, which is filled with Ben's humorous, childish paranoia about the logistics of having an affair with an older woman. Um, when the affair began, Ben was very... Ben was very unsure of himself, which required Mrs. Robinson to take on a more aggressive role. As the summer goes on and the affair continues, Ben's demeanor becomes less riddled with anxiety as he begins to learn more about how Mrs. Robinson has experienced her own existential crises in the past. Ben's parents also begin to question his long-term plans as they wonder what has taken up so much of his time in the evenings. And Ben finally realizes that he can really only control his future by making his own decisions. But the only real decision he's intended on making at that moment is to continue with this affair. Eventually, Ben's parents get tired of his apathetic view of life, and they set him up on a date with Elaine Robinson, who's played by Catherine, Catherine Ross. Reluctantly, Ben agrees to go on a date, but initially has no intention of seeing Elaine again afterwards. Ben actually goes out of his way to make the date between he and Elaine an awful and humiliating experience. However, something changed for Ben when he saw the disappointment and humiliation on Elaine's face. Ben realized in this moment that he should have given Elaine more of a chance and that he might actually have feelings for her. They relocate their date to a more relaxed setting and the two of them hit it off. So the second act of the story then follows Ben on the process of um, coming to terms that, with the fact that he loves Elaine, even though Mrs. Robinson had made it very clear that they were not to see each other. Mrs. Robinson, in a jealous rage, threatens to tell Mr. Robinson and Elaine everything about the affair, which causes Ben to rush to Elaine's side to tell her himself. Upon telling Elaine of the affair, Elaine tells Ben she never wants to see him again. And being that this happens towards the end of the summer, Elaine moves back to school and Ben eventually follows her there to give um, to ask for a second chance and ultimately propose marriage to her. Um, but Ben quickly learns that there's a new man in her life named Carl. And upon learning that Ben intends to propose marriage to Elaine, 
Mrs. and Mr. Robinson, um, who Mr. Robinson now knows about the affair, take Elaine away to a secret location and force her to marry Carl instead. The climax of the story happens after Ben finally locates where the wedding is taking place. Ben arrives at the church right as the couple perform the ceremonial kiss. And without any further option, Ben pounds wildly on the large glass windows in the church's loft and shouts out Elaine's name. Seeing Ben's passion, she storms away, leaving Carl at the altar, meets Ben at the church entrance, and the two of them promptly hop onto a transit bus to escape the manic scene. The iconic last scene shows Ben and Elaine sitting in the back of the bus as they pull away from the church. The two of them sit in silence, laughing initially at the absurdity of what they just did, but this laughter transitions into the horrifying realization that they may have just made the biggest mistake of their lives. At its heart, the film is about finding ourselves through experiences that require us to reimagine what society expects of us. It is about navigating expectations and the hardships that come along with self-discovery. While the film has plenty of comedic parts, the somber ending reminds the viewer that life is unpredictable and it is filled with deliberate choices that have inescapable consequences for better or for worse. Well done, well done. Would you say uh, Ben's having a quarter-life crisis? I don't quarter life I guess yeah yeah it's, it's hard to keep in mind the life expectancy wasn't the same back then <laughs> right with all the cigarette smoke and all the yeah reckless driving who knows how long Ben's life really had that was a terrible date too it was awful I, I I've not even gotten anywhere close to a date anywhere close to that bad so and I didn't that was a real big turning point and this is something we can talk about in a minute, but that was a big turning point for me in the movie and deciding how I felt about Ben and the rest of the movie. Mm. Um, so be interested to talk about that with both of you. Speaking of terrible and first dates, and I don't mean this was a terrible first date, but it was a terrible movie on a first date. Uh, the first thing I ever took my wife to see, it was our first date was 13 ghosts with Matthew Lillard. Yes. That's a great movie. Yeah. So I mean, it wasn't it, it wasn't a strip club, but it was it was pretty br- brutal viewing either way. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. Uh, although getting hit with nipple tassels, swinging in circles on top of <laughs> right. your head, is I mean... which would be a bad thing to do. So <laughs> for some, I guess for a first date, that seems like more of a fourth date type of thing. Maybe you're gonna love this. Probably. Sit <laughs> sit right here. Right. I'll probably bring this up several times during during this podcast, but I think that was one of the things that I had an issue with this movie is just the absolute lunacy of all the things involved with it. I, it just how how this movie ended versus all the reasons why it would never have ended that way blew my mind. Hmm. Interesting. W- were you aware of the ending before you watched it? Because there have been several yeah. homages. Specifically, I'm thinking of The Simpsons, most of all. Wayne's World, too. Wayne's World, I Wayne's ha- World, I too, is that. great. Wayne, Wayne runs into a chapel that looks very similar and modern, and like he bangs on the glass, and like he's like telling them to stop the wedding! Oh, yeah. And it's too late, and he realizes that it's not them getting married, and so he runs across the street out of the first Presbyterian church, across the street to the second Presbyterian church, and it's an exact mirror of the exact same church, and he runs up in the exact same scene, bangs on the glass, and like, stop the wedding! I, I did not know that one, but clearly this the, the last scene is memorable for many reasons. So, And you're right, The Simpsons and Family Guy and all of Family the, Guy, yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, uh, for a really long time, 
during the, I should say, let's call it the first 45 minutes of this movie, I had convinced myself that Ben was actually a con artist. He had never graduated from anything. I never <laughs> bought the track star part. Oh, that he nice. came back and he was acting. I mean, just just by the way that he talked to people, I was like, this guy didn't graduate anything. I think I was off put by how he is so depressed and empty in the first part of the movie. And somehow this time was the first time that his nervous, stuttery, clumsy, lost, awkward part of his life. Perhaps, it's, again, maybe it's just that I've gotten in life far enough removed from that that I can then look back on some of those feelings that he has and laugh at it. Mm. Um, I see the humor in it now. And, uh, you know, I mean, even when he's just really nervous and like he's like with Mrs. Robinson, she's like, hang my coat up. And he's just like... Wood, what? Wood. We've got they've got <laughs> the wire hairs. or wood. I mean, like which yeah, do you want? <laughs> like she's like right. it doesn't matter. And just like that nervous like energy he has that 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 that, that is very funny. And then you're right. The movie I shifts in tone. Yeah, I couldn't wrap my head around how someone who was good at all the things that come along with getting a high end education and who was a sports star for his college would be like, it didn't match up. I mean, if this was like the prequel to revenge of the nerds or something like that, absolutely <laughs> totally buy it. But I, I could never get my head in this movie because it didn't match up. Well, it's an affair like, for one. It's a married woman. He, she's very confident and she, I mean, he's not like, this is all very different. I mean, uh, it, how many movies have you seen a from that time? Have you seen a sports star from a college be that befuddled? He's a track star for one. He's not like on the front page of the paper for being. I mean, I don't yeah, know. but that was that was that was a bigger deal back then. Like, it's not like now, where you know if you can name a couple people on your track team, hats off to you. But back then, that would have been a big deal. That's why everybody's bragging about it. I just I. The willing suspension of disbelief was not there for me because his character counteracted his character. Maybe. It definitely felt like two movies that were put together um, where I really enjoyed the first movie. By the time the second movie came along where he's starting to get into his Elaine relationship, I started to question severely whether or not I really care about this person at all. So um, I definitely sympathize with right. what you're saying. Brian, do you want to give us a walk through the uh, cast? Absolutely. So, uh, Anne Bancroft. Mrs. Mel Brooks. Yeah. Turn Anne Bancroft plays Mrs. Robinson. Uh, Dustin Hoffman plays Ben Braddock. Catherine Ross plays Elaine Robinson. William Daniels plays Mr. Braddock. Murray Hamilton plays Mr. Robinson. Buck Henry plays a room clerk. Brian Avery plays Carl Smith. Walter Brooke plays Mr. McGuire. Norman Fell plays Mr. McCleary. Alice Ghostly, Mrs. Singleton. Marion Lorne, Miss DeWitt. And I'll, I just want to toss this one out there. I, I was going to hold it off until we did like cool little side notes. But uh, additional guy in the hallway waiting to beat up Dustin Hoffman was played by um, Richard Dreyfus. That's right, yeah. Should we call the cops? I'll call the cops. Mr. Holland himself. And fun, yeah, I, I, 
I I actually would have liked the movie better if everybody in that hallway just beat the crap out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I wanted Dre that to happen so much at the time. Dreyfus and uh, Hoffman are roommates at NYU as well, so mm -hmm. they go back even farther than this movie. So yeah, so I. Uh, yeah, that was that was a big part for me where I was like, yes, this is gonna happen. <laughs> so Hoffman, this is his second film role. This is this is his springboard for his career. So it launched a huge career for him. And Bancroft, as Brian mentioned, his first build, she was the bigger uh, name coming into this movie. I gotta talk about ages of the cast right yeah, off the bat. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting. Dustin Hoffman at the time of this movie is 29, mm -hmm. and he says he's a week from turning 20, 21. He looks he looks like a rough 21. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you agree with College. that. College. Yeah. <laughs> and Anne Bancroft says that I'm twice your age. Well, she's 35, and that means that she's only six years older than Dustin Hoffman, which isn't even that absurd, really. Mm -hmm. So the wild and crazy age difference they went to Hoffman portrayed nervous youthful energy really well and it does help pull you back into it but when you take a step back and you look at it and you go how did this get through casting you know she's not old enough he's not young enough and yes he's really good and you might let that slide but you have to offset that you would think by getting an even older woman you would think i don't know so and her her makeup I mean, they had, they had to put some heavy makeup onto her so to make her look that old, and I'm not so sure it's convincing. I don't know. It's inconsistent too, because there's a few scenes where it's just like, oh, she looks kind of young in this, and then mm -hmm. there's some other ones where it's just like, what's is it, is she just looks like she's melting because they've right. like done old makeup and exactly. makeup yeah. artistry wasn't what it is now. I agree. So. Strange choice. Uh, I wasn't sure if they were going to go back and show a flashback at some point, which is why they might have gotten a younger actor and older mm. her up. But they didn't do that either. So, Casting, uh, let's talk about that just a little bit. Uh, Mrs. Robinson, uh, which was the big role here uh, that Anne Bancroft got, uh, was the uh, not necessarily the first choice in the movie. Jane Moreau, the French actress, was, uh, uh, who was 40 years old, a little bit older, was the original first choice. Uh, didn't pan out and Doris Day was uh, actually offered the role but she didn't want to do it uh, I guess the nudity could have been an issue there and she just says I didn't see myself walking around with a uh, and a younger boyfriend and she did have to kind of have a wholesome image so mm -hmm. uh, she passed on it Patricia Neal turned down the film uh, she had just had a stroke and didn't feel up to it uh, and Gertelaine Page uh, also turned it down and uh, here's some interesting ones Audrey Hepburn, Lauren Bacall, and Ava Gardner, all really talented, beautiful women, uh, all older, too, I might add, wanted this role. And it's hard to believe that, that those kind of actresses came to the door and they didn't get it. And so uh, Anne Bancroft must have had a good end through, uh, the, through the politics of the system. So Mike Nichols is very choosy with his actors. Uh, he's very, it's a very uh, reputation of his, so... Another interesting one is uh, in the role for Benjamin, Robert Redford tried out for the part and really wanted it. And Mike Nichols didn't think that he was right for the part, even though when we read the book, he's actually a tall, athletic, blonde man. And he kind of wanted to go this other direction with Hoffman, who's a short Jewish guy. Uh, doesn't necessarily look like a track star. And Redford was kind of insistent that, you know, I, I need to get this role. And, uh, Mike Nichols told him, he's like, Robert when was the last time you struck out with a girl? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, and that's the problem. 
see, but again, that's that's more believable to me. I can I can absolutely picture Redford in that role convincingly. You can be befuddled that an older woman is coming on to you and not be a dick otherwise. <laughs> you know, you can be a strong, confident person who doesn't know what they want to do with their life. And then when an older woman comes on to you, you can be like, oh, God, I don't know what to do. That's something that's possible. It, it was just the the utter bewilderment of his entire character. It uh, If he had a different voice, he would remind me of Chris from Family Guy. <laughs> I gotta t- at this point, I do have to take a pause. Do you hate Hoffman all the time across the board, or is it just now? Um, no, it, it was just this, this part in this movie. Okay, just checking. Mm-hmm. Had, had, had to take yeah. a quick check. I would flip it. I, no problem. I think this is probably the only thing I like Hoffman in. I think everything oh, else. Oh, man. Well, I'm just in a whole other place. I'm happy it. here and I like him in everything. <laughs> so, I mean. Um, anyway, back to the fun fun recasting uh, things. Uh, you know, Elaine's character also had an interesting set of people go for it. Candace Bergen, Goldie Hawn, Jane Fonda, and Sally Field all screen tested. And so they got as far to actually be reading lines. Uh Patty Duke and Faye Dunaway declined the role. Uh, other considerations included Anne Margaret, Elizabeth Ashley, Carol Linney, uh, Sue Linden, uh, Suzanne Palchette, Lee Remark, Pamela Tiffin, and Julie Christie. So, tons of people wanted this role. And in the end, uh, they made a great choice there, too, I think. So, I think, I think that Catherine Ross was very charming, and I, I'm glad they made that pick. So. She's very innocent. She has a very, um, I think she has a good face for Mike Nichols' film style because he's very much into close-ups and things. So, I, yeah, I think that her her face really is what sold it for him. She's 27 playing 19, but this is what Hollywood does all the time anyway. So this is within the, uh, what you could call, I guess, I guess this is just how the business works. So, um you don't pick up the age difference there for her mm-hmm. either. So, one thing they did do, I noticed, is uh, throughout the movie they always say Mister or Mrs. Mm-hmm. All characters above a certain age level are consistently called Mister or Mrs. Whatever their last name is, and only the younger people who are college age, like Carl, mm-hmm. or Lane, or Ben, get called by their first name. And I think that that was an in- done to play up that difference. Yeah, I think having a character like Ben who is uh, questioning his kind of place in the world, making him seem as much as an outsider as possible. I think that was definitely intentional. So Lawrence Terman reads a book uh, and is not really amazed by the book itself, but there's something in the story that sticks with him. And so he buys the story, brings in director, or sorry, brings in writer Buck Henry to help write the screenplay, because the screenplay that was written for it, he said, was not good at all. Buck Henry helped create this, and he brings Mike Nichols in as the director. What do we think about this team of Terman, Henry, and Nichols? Mark, do you want to take this one first? Uh, Well, as I already mentioned, um, I'm a huge Nichols fan. I think that a main thing that that Nichols does with his films is he's focused a lot on dialogue, a lot on character development, and so I think the screenplay is probably the most important decision that Nichols had in choosing um, kind of how to portray the film. Yeah, I thought the the screenplay. I I, I will uh, I will agree that I think that the line delivery of the screenplay may have been a little off at times. Um, but I think 
uh, the writing is, is pretty solid. Um, and I'm not too familiar with Lawrence Terman. Um, as but, a producer. As a producer, yeah. yeah. But he chose Mike Nichols, so he can't be that bad. <laughs> Buck, Buck Henry is a very funny guy. I, I actually know him largely through Saturday Night Live. He's one of the Ooh. very frequent hoster of older SNLs. He's, he's really funny as an actor, and he's the guy at the desk at the hotel who has several funny interchanges, including, are you here for an affair? Right. What? <laughs> I'm sorry? Why, yes. <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> Or the, when he goes to ring the bell, is like, I'll have a porter bring your bag around. And like Dustin Hoffman, like reaches his hand Stop. and covers him <laughs> over. Again, that's that nervous, jittery energy of like, no, 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 I, I, I don't want to trouble anybody. Right, and... right. I brought a toothbrush. My toothbrush is in my in my j- jacket pocket. So it's kind of fun to see the Good writer get thinking. into the movie. <laughs> Brian, it's going to be interesting knowing that you're coming from a different perspective. So clearly, you're not as pleased with how Hoffman portrays the role. How do you feel about how this movie is directed uh, by Mike Nichols? I mean, my only real gripe is that I, I just I feel that if you can't get your audience members into it, and again, totally willing to be on an island here, but I, it just it he the casting choice specifically of Hoffman for the role clashed with what the movie was telling me was supposed to be going on. And um, I really don't have a lot of issues. I enjoyed how the movie was shot. Um, I think that the dialogue was fine outside of the fact that I feel like it was very repetitive and redundant. Um, but again, I'd rather this not. could be coming from a <laughs> yeah, it's just coming from a from a different generation. You know, if that's how they talked back then, then perhaps you know I'm the broken one. So um, I don't want to crap on. Like I said, I'm not here to crap on it or anything. Uh, Buck Henry, I've you know I've always enjoyed him. He's in Grumpy Old Men. It was one of the first comedies I really remember watching. Mm-hmm. He wrote for Catch Twenty Two. Mm-hmm. That was fantastic. So I don't know. I, you know, I'm I don't. I don't have a I don't have a whole lot to to criticize uh, outside of the fact that this particular movie just didn't do it for me. So back to Buck Henry for a second. You'll see Calder Willingham uh, on the credits with Buck Henry as the screenwriting credit. Buck Henry was the only writer of it, and he was unaware of uh, Calder Willingham's ever doing another draft prior to him. Mm-hmm. However, uh, Willingham came in and later raised a suit saying that my name needs to be on this and I need to have a credit for this because I wrote the story first before he rewrote it and unfortunately it's written off of the book so there's a great deal of similarity Hmm. between the two screenplays it's just one's much better than the other and um, so you'll see both of their names appear on it however in execution this is fully Buck Henry's right screenplay so kind of an interesting political kind of thing that somebody else got his name you know stapled on there yeah, and I assume that no one really expected this movie to be the top-grossing movie of the year. So once that happens, then people start appearing out of the word woodwork, and yeah, I was, I helped, <laughs> I did something. It's shaking bacon. I helped make it. <laughs> what do you guys think about the ending? I'm gonna go straight to that one for the director's storytelling. Mark, mm. like, how do you like this? Like, they're in the bus, they're laughing, and then what do you make of the fact that they? All of a sudden, the, the smile completely fades from Elaine's face, and 
also Benjamin has a nervous, tense jaw. Yeah, I the ending because I didn't like the second half of the movie as much as the first. I think the ending was as good as it could have been. I would have been upset had it been uh, all roses happy and, and happy and yeah. Um, so I was happy with the ending. I will say that interestingly, so when Nichols was directing the scene, he was directing the actors to laugh. They, he wanted a laugh track. He wanted it to be very much a them laughing and then cut away. He wanted that so much that he was actually screaming it at the actors behind the camera. Huh. And so when we, what we see actually in, in the finished product is we see them kind of laugh and then the end of that laugh track and then goes into the actors being authentically scared of Nichols because they, he was screaming at they them. They don't look comfortable. They don't look comfortable. <laughs> and so Nichols, that was not part of his original plan which I think is interesting because I think that's such a key moment in the film. Obviously, it's the last thing we see of these characters and we see their their indecision. We see them questioning everything. And that was not, those looks were not planned at all. It was something that the actors did organically based on how Nichols was directing them. Hmm. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But yeah, I was happy with how the ending kind of was very open-ended and I'm not sure there was any other way to end it, really. <laughs> hey, what was your takeaway on that one, Brian? At this point in the movie, I was shocked <laughs> that she left with him from the church. And I was in such a, a manner of shock that it didn't really register it until I really thought about it later, the import of, of that ending scene. The A, B to C that led to a girl running out of a church after getting married with a guy that took her on that first date, slept with her mom. Mom told her uh, he raped her, stalked her for a questionable amount of time, said, no, I didn't do it, because that's really all they show him get to do. And then she leaves with him from a church after her wedding. Like, after the I do's. Like, in what world does that happen like in in that sequence los angeles just, 1967 I, <laughs> clearly I mean, so i don't know i just when that movie ended i was just sitting there like what okay <laughs> i take an interesting yeah. way from this I, and it's interesting that it happened by accident because i read that these guys are happy they're leaving they're they're running on high and just like everything in life your happiness is going to fade and you're going to notice Simon and Garfunkel's The Sound of Silence <laughs> comes in for like the 900th time. Mm -hmm. But it's important that it comes in because that, that song represents the emptiness that is in Benjamin. And even though he's happy that he has somebody that he actually connects with and he has somebody who has a real connection, ultimately he is still not completely fulfilled because he has no purpose. He doesn't have a career that's picked out. He doesn't know what's next. He doesn't have that next thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've got this girl. She's great. She's on board with me. But what's next? And that whole what's next thing is where the movie began. And in a way, it kind of shows me that like you have to love yourself. You have to be happy with yourself before you can really be able to love somebody else effectively and be in a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. And so it ends in a somewhat troubling moment of like, okay, this is good. But the greater, bigger picture of like the thing my dad was you know, yelling at me in the pool is just like, hey, what are you going to do with your life? Mm -hmm. That's still going to be a problem for him. And Elaine, just loving him, won't fix that alone. And I think that that's what that... To me, that's how I took that. Let me ask you something, Russ. Outside of... Actually, I, give me a single character 
in that movie that displayed healthy behaviors. Carl. Carl gets like one line. He's just this guy. He's probably Robert Redford. He's the guy that yeah. can talk to girls. I'd like, and I'd like to think that Buck Henry goes home and has a, has a nice family life. <laughs> yeah. He's a nice guy. Eats dogs at the you know uh, pound in the weekends. And yeah. <laughs> she runs off. That, that's my that's my answer i just i also like some of the foreshadowing that are in this i thought i liked how in the early seeing uh one of the women comes up to him and says oh like uh, one of the men comes up and says like you got that new car it'll be great for picking up the teeny boppers and his <laughs> wife says oh i think ben's a little past the teeny bopper stage don't you and like that's again like a nice little foreshadowing moment thanks of, frankie shadowing yeah <laughs> And uh, another foreshadowing moment is the movie opens up with him in a fish tank, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a little scuba diver inside that fish tank mm-hmm. over his shoulder. And later on, he and it's isolated and it's lonely. And again, you're on display. Grounding in expectations. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. He's on display in this fish tank, and later he will be on display in a fish tank with a scuba diver suit scuba. in the bottom of a pool. So mm-hmm. that's a big scene as well. Absolutely. Uh, outside of the metaphorical import of that scene, I still have no idea why that was there. Like, what the dad's purpose is? Like, hey, put on your scuba gear and get in this pool. Oh, the... Like, what? What's he supposed to do in there? He's like, I'm gonna amaze you because you just took a spear gun into a swimming pool. Like, what are you gonna do, Mark? Well, well, this this is one of the biggest scenes of the movie. Do you want to go into this one first? I mean, this is actually the the scene that I chose for the best scene. This is my oh, I'm sorry for the best shot. I loved the scu- I loved him in the scuba suit, being able to drown out the noise around him. I I appreciated the the build up. I can't necessarily say that I the metaphor landed when he was actually in the pool, but I think the build up to that scene. Um, with him being reluctant to come out of the of, out of the house and um, not wanting to be on display or whatever, but eventually once he gets out, he realizes that the suit is perfect for kind of dumbing out all of the noise around him. So it kind of creates this perfect safe haven for him. I really I really appreciated the buildup once he got in the water, and I think that was maybe more for like you said a metaphorical effect than anything else i mean the suit is in a way the plan that his parents have for him i need you to wear this thing and come out and show all the people and i spent a lot of money I on this a and lot I, of money I, I, and I need you to do this don't embarrass me in front of my friends and you know he's like dad i'd, I'd rather uh, i'd rather not right i I'd really like to <laughs> talk to you about that I, I don't want to do this and so uh it, again once he gets in the pool He's like, okay, I did my thing. I'm gonna resurface now, and his dad shoves him back into the pool. Yeah. <laughs> this is an. This is again a meta. Like you said, it's it's metaphoric. It's uh, I I just thought this was one of the best uh, moments as a director for the movie. Uh, the pool is a, an important thing because again, water shows you that he is in a quiet, secluded place. Throughout the movie, he goes into quiet, secluded places, mm-hmm. whether it be his room whether it be the, the pool, whether it be his apartment in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Uh, he prefers to be with Mrs. Robinson in the dark. Mm-hmm. The Sound of Silence is a big song for this. So he is shunning this L.A. world. I'll kind of go, uh, I'll save some of this for the atmosphere, but mm-hmm. there's a bright, sunny, blonde, big people are all around uh, with big white smiles and stuff like that. And he's not sure that he wants to be part of this. Yeah, absolutely. And so... Uh, Lots of metaphors all over of... the place. Mike Nichols is great about that. Oh man, he's he, he is. I like the sad clown in the hallway before he goes down because <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, that was that painting is just like that. That's how he feels right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the opening scene when he gets his luggage and it says, "Do they match?" Right. Like as if to say, this baggage mm. that you're carrying does it really go to you? So <laughs> very direct, but very good, good stuff there uh, yep. from Mike Nichols. Uh, again, I I think it is interesting. Most of these impressive camera work moments are in the first part of the movie. You're right. The, mm-hmm. the movie kind of does transform in the second half. Mm-hmm. It's like they wanted to hurry up and finish telling the story. It's like the first the first half was like, okay, we're gonna put our our writs on this, our our stamp, to you know really import the message, and then they were like, oh, we spent this much time doing all this. We need to hit fast forward now and tell the rest of the story so we don't go over time. Yeah, how do we resolve everything? <laughs> right. I'll go into another one. I, I like the strong use of close-ups in the first part of the movie. Uh, it gets close to Ben's face. He's depressed. He's mm-hmm. he's lonely. He's sad. It starts in the airplane and it zooms out, and you realize he's alone on a whole plane full of people. In the in this bedroom, he's he's on display in this fish tank, and you know you don't even see his father. His mom walks in front of the camera as he goes down to all the guests. Nobody's face is on the camera fully. It's all on him, and it feels overwhelming. It's like it's this, he probably feels claustrophobic. Like, I'm overwhelmed. I'm an introverted person, probably. I'm not an introverted person, and it helped me get into his head to actually kind of get what it might feel like to be an introverted person who's mm-hmm. being paraded around. And um, so I think that's a good, good, just really good direction. And the one person they do show in full screen there, uh, and, and amidst all the party moving around, and the background, dressed in dark colors again, mm-hmm. is Mrs. Robinson. Wow. And, and animal print. She was wearing a wild animal print to mm-hmm. symbol her wild oats that are about to be sown. <laughs> can, can we talk about their day room for just a second and how absolutely ludicrous it was? I mean, I know it was the late 60s, so you know, take that with a grain of salt. Sure. But I, I remember seeing that and thinking, I feel like I've seen frat houses with a room that looked like that. <laughs> very. It was also very jungle jungle centric there were plants all over the place and um i think even some more animal print all over i thought it was it was an interesting idea to represent the middle class i didn't ever feel like i was looking at a middle class family whether i'm talking about the braddocks or the robinsons although that is they were self-defined as middle class that that never came out came through to me it felt very much an affluent um, existence and I think that day room was a good example of that um, yeah very lavishly designed over designed I don't consider myself the most intellectual viewer so maybe I missed some things with breaking down Nichols's camera work but I thought it was interesting he did like what we talked about with the party and then he also did this other thing on the beginning where Hoffman's on a people mover mm-hmm. and he's moving in the opposite direction every single person walks past him from left to right mm-hmm. left to right as in, like, everybody's moving forward, but he's going right to left. And he's going very slowly, and nobody else passes him, nobody else with him. And in a way, it shows him, like, he's not really moving forward. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was another interesting thing. But that's... Some of these things don't really... He he uses these toolkits, in my mind, like, once or twice. Mm-hmm. Like, he frames uh, the face of him in the hotel or, like, under the leg of Mrs. Robinson later. Mm-hmm. So he's like, his face is framed really tight, making mm-hmm. him feel like tight and claustrophobic. I thought it was interesting how many devices as a director he uses, but he doesn't go back to them later. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like, this is my toolkit and I'm going to use tool A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. 
I, it's all good stuff, but I just thought it was interesting. I'm gonna use tool A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, and I'm gonna all use them all once. Am I wrong? No, I. No, that's that's accurate. I think it's all, it's almost a product of the film school generation that Nichols was. You know, you kind of have like cinema history. You're you're talking about this is post kind of the classical studio system where all the films were kind of reproduced mechanistically, where they all look the same. And then you have film school starting to come up. And Nichols is one of the early graduates of the film school generation. And so film school is all about being innovative and finding new shots. So it very much is him putting as many of those tricks in as they so possibly it's a sign could. Of the, so it's a sign of the times and a, and a new director trying to stake his. That's how I took it. I mean, it reminds me a lot of um, George Lucas's early stuff, um, who was very much part of that generation as well. Uh, Scorsese, the same Spielberg as well, where they just have this a lot of different camera innovations that come up and that they just want to recreate as many as they can just to show that they can, huh. basically. Because I think of like Hitchcock, who's like one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. He has... He has his thing. Mm-hmm. He's going to use it every time. He reproduced and he, it. And yeah. he's good at it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he can explain it to you in a formula. Steven Spielberg, same way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He's got his things. Yeah. And he goes back to them over and over and over again and gets better at them. Yeah. Something I like about Nichols's shots, and I know he, he um, isn't technically the cinematographer, but he has a heavy hand in, in um, the cinematography, is a lot of his films he will have a the shots themselves are very much still images, almost like still life paintings, which characters aren't really talking or you hear dialogue, but you're not focused on the characters that are doing the dialogue. You're more focused on the characters reacting to the dialogue. So a lot of the shots are um, what I would call still images that are then interrupted by some sort of human emotion. And sometimes he does it with music. He'll do a lot of montages with music where there's no dialogue at all, but it really is him just showing a picture in his mind and recreating it on the screen. Um, and that's something that, that Nichols does in most of his movies is he's very visual. He wants the film to speak visually um, through how the, how the screen is composed or how the um, characters are composed on the screen. Is that he's, blocking? Um, blocking, composition, um, yeah. mise-en-scene, whatever, whatever you want to, um, however you want to think about it. But it's very intentional. Um, and I think a big reason for that is he has such a background in stage direction. So Nichols was a huge um, theater person before he transitioned to film, and so a lot of his uh, of his of his scenes are very simplistic in what they're showing because he's used to this very kind of simplistic stage direction. Um, but ultimately, he relies on dialogue. He relies on character-driven stories um, to a point where. It, for this movie and maybe for even others, it's it's almost a fault of his um, that it isn't more plot driven or the plot doesn't seem very realistic in that sense. That he is more he's more interested in making the best shot look as good as it possibly could. It's more about the feel than the uh, how it would go together as a story. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so a strength and a weakness. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think it's a strength. Some people probably would think it's a weakness. <laughs> I'm trying to. I, uh, I'm, uh, Brian might think less so on that one, but yeah. This is this takes place in the assumed present, nineteen sixty seven, Los Angeles. Some interesting things, uh, Brian. What did you take away from? The, I, I get the feeling that you're not really at home in this glamorous, superficial, well off suburb of L.A. with all these beautiful blonde tan people around. Is that part of what's rubbing you yeah, the, the wrong way? The people around him. Oh, 
No, uh, that's that's all fine. That's all part of the setup. Uh, like I said, with the you know with suspending disbelief, you're you want to put yourself in there. So it's not necessarily that I have anything against the lifestyle or anything. It's just I didn't think that he matched it. Um, I and I think they go it. out. Well, and I think they go out of the way to to illustrate that. Sure, but at the same time, if if you don't, you had to fit in at some in some facet before you left for college you can come back a completely different person but you can't be you know just a a cog in a wheel that doesn't have cogs i'm not sure how to to really describe how he just he stuck out so bad that it rubbed the flow to me okay It, it was all about my ability to immerse myself in the film and and that was that was one of the holdups Hmm. Yeah, something I was thinking, um, if you've if you've seen the TV show Mad Men, um, obviously this takes place in a similar similar time period. And the difference that the show takes from a New York East Coast lens to a West Coast lens, I think is is very telling. And I think that is kind of what I see in Ben, that he's been on the East Coast, which is a very different kind of social um, environment. And then he's put back into the West Coast where... So I'm assuming he's maybe more comfortable in this more urban um, kind of lifestyle, whereas now he's back in the suburban and he feels out of place. So I was thinking of about it as an East Coast, West Coast thing, although that was never explicitly said at all. Um, but I was using my kind of experience watching Mad Men and kind of the, the dichotomy of those two to kind of fill in for that for me. I would agree that there's probably more self-loathing in Mad Men that fits <laughs> yeah. his personality. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. All of these places are shot around the Los Angeles area. Beverly Hills for the Mrs. Robinson's house is a real place that you can drive by to this mm-hmm. day. Uh, the drive-in restaurant was real. Uh, one interesting thing, though, is that Cal Berkeley said no filming at this time, so they went to UCLA to film this. So Take that, Cal. There you go. That is not really Cal in it. However, there are other Berkeley shots around town, and there are obviously scenes in the Bay Area uh, with the bridges and... You yeah, know. my understanding is most of the campus shots they they did kind of a guerrilla filming style of that where they, like you said, they weren't given permission, but they ended up taking cameras anyway and and getting shots that they needed. That was true in the zoo, I think, as well. And another scene I can't remember right now, but um, there were a lot of these kind of location film uh, shots that weren't necessarily agreed upon or contractually <laughs> that reminds me of bowfinger where like where they shoot this movie with the, the, the big name actor not being aware that he's even in the movie right, the whole time. right. <laughs> i think there's actually i read somewhere that the zoo scene um catherine ross in, in filming that scene they're in the midst of the zoo and they don't have permission to to be there and so there are actual people coming up to her and trying to hit on her so you can see one of the edits where she has to dodge a guy coming at her well, sure who was speaking lot. at her, like trying to pick, pick her up, um, which I wasn't uh, attentive to enough the first time around, but it's interesting. Hi, Carl. This is Ben. He rode with me on the bus. Hi, Ben. Get, a, get, a, get, a, uh, get lost. It's like, hi, I'm John. I would also like to meet you. Right. <laughs> it's like, exactly. Once John's done meeting you, my name's Hank, and I also find you attractive, and while I'm fourth in line, you'll find me to be the most interesting person here to talk to you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, one other fun architectural alert, architecture nerd moment, the United Methodist Church by in Laverne by Thornton Ladd and John Kelsey in ni- is a 1961 church. 
this thing is really cool. I just love the scene in there. One fun thing is Hoffman goes up and slams his hands on the glass. Ooh. He actually hit it with his fist aggressively and the pastor was there to oversee and make sure nothing goes wrong in the church and he did not like this giant piece of plate glass deflecting Ooh. and bouncing like it was gonna break. And so uh, he got really mad and was about to tell people like, guys, you gotta go, you're tearing up stuff. And so then they, 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 they calmed him down and they said, uh, can you just like tap the glass, like keep your elbows on the glass and just tap it? And like Hoffman thought like, what? I just ran in here full speed. I'm not gonna just like go tap, tap, tap on the glass. And like, <laughs> that's it. That's all you can do. Right. And it's kind of funny. People have, uh, you know, you'll see an interview with Hoffman telling the story. People think it's a Christ-like figure because he's got his arms out. But in reality, nothing to do with that. He said the director didn't want anything to do with that. It's just, it was a simple function of he had to make some noise and look desperate without actually hitting the glass very hard, so. Yeah. The joys of location shoots, where you can't really control everything. <laughs> I hope they gave him a special thanks to the pastor in the movie. That's where you hire a stage guy to be like, "Hey, buddy, let's go outside and talk. Right. Let's let them do their thing. We're gonna we're gonna talk about God. Let's let's walk out here." <laughs> Other wardrobe comments I got to bring up is: Is Ben like the most formally preppy twenty-one-year-old college graduate who's slacking and doesn't have a job that you'll ever see? Like he goes around wearing a tie and a jacket a lot, like. I mean, 1967, again, middle class. I never got middle class from it. So maybe that was part of it was, okay. was it just didn't, I didn't, I didn't see I question blue that. collar at all. It was, there are hippies in this time, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I, I, something, something didn't sit well with me on this. He's like, he looks like he's very establishment still. But I think still, like going back to New York, like that seems like an East Coast thing versus a West Coast. Like when you go out in New York, you you are you dress of, up. You well, I don't sixties. Uh, I don't know, but yeah, you have kind of your work to evening wear that you have to transition. So it might be very similar. Whereas L.A. maybe not as much. John, use your time machine. Go back to the sixties and tell us is this normal attire or not? Come back <laughs> next week and tell us. Report back. Take at least three Hawaiian shirts with you. <laughs> <laughs> Got to talk about music. Brian, I know you're a big music fan. What did you think about the large doses of Simon and Garfunkel? I I, I thought something was broken. Because <laughs> they kept like, playing the same songs over and over like, again, you mean? I was, it was, it's so against everything that I love about movies that have a good soundtrack. And I like Simon and Garfunkel, but after that, the movie was over, I was like, it's going to take me a little while to listen to either of those songs again. <laughs> they get Specifically used a lot. Sound of science, uh, Silence and um, uh, Scarborough Fair. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I was like, it's going to take me a while to listen to either of those again. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, the John Mulaney stand-up where he's talking about going to the diner and playing – Let's do Pussycat like six times and tossing in it. It's not unusual. <laughs> That's what I thought was happening to me in this movie. Like that was the first thing that went to my mind was that John Mulaney stand up. And I was like, they're pranking me right now. Like I, there I'm, is one I'm place hate. where they play, they play Scarborough fair and they play it again and repeat. <laughs> I wouldn't have, I didn't, I didn't actually catch this on my own, but in doing some homework for the show, I was like, Oh Yeah. It's actually not that long of a song. Scarborough Fair was the one that like stood out to me. I was like, this has no place being here. It was, I mean, it was purely for well, it's ambiance. I once lost the true love of mine. I guess he's out after his true love. Yeah. Okay. I have a feeling I'm gonna. (laughs) I have a feeling I'm gonna be the only defender here of the uh, soundtrack. I I love it. I love the soundtrack. I I have the soundtrack. Um, but for for a movie, yeah, it was. I I thought the soundtrack is it track one. 
Sound of Silence. Sound Track of two, Silence, yeah. Sound of Silence. <laughs> Track three, Sound of Silence. Track yeah, four. That's about prepared. right. Yeah, Track I think five, that's what I remember. Well, Sound of Silence <laughs> is a theme for the emptiness and the loneliness that he feels. That and absolutely fit very well. I mean, maybe you would have been happier had it just been an instrumental of it because if they had only sung the lyrics in it once and then you used a acoustic instrumental version of it as the reprieve mm -hmm. for like, okay, we're lonely and sad again. Mm -hmm. That makes more sense. I can, I can get more behind that. I, I just, I remember thinking, how much did Simon and Garfunkel pay for this music video? Hmm. <laughs> well, it's actually interesting. Terman paid Simon, Paul Simon, to do three new songs for the movie, and he did not. He gave him Mrs. Robinson, mm -hmm. which wasn't even written for the movie. It was going to be another song. Or called Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, so one of the things is, yeah, exactly. It wasn't called Mrs. Robinson. He made a clear deal for three songs, and uh, he begged for more, and Simon didn't have time. He was touring. He had a few notes that he was working on for a new song. He played it for Terman. Terman loved it, but it was about uh, Mrs. Roosevelt and Joe DiMaggio and other historical stuff, as it was uh, said in an interview. And it's not about Mrs. Robinson. Uh, sorry, um, uh, Nichols advised Simon and said... Uh, I think this song's about Mrs. Robinson now, not Mrs. Roosevelt. <laughs> and so they uh, they hijacked a song of his, and Simon was hesitant to do it, but uh, he did it, and uh, it turned out great. Uh, mm -hmm. It marketed the movie, the movie marketed the song, everybody mm -hmm. won, highly successful song. But you're right, the other stuff uh, was from other Simon and Garfunkel works, from the 1964 Sound of Silence album is where that came, as well as the song that where he wakes up the morning after Mrs. Robinson, April mm -hmm. Come She Will. Mm -hmm. And that song's very appropriate because it's about like the passage of time and she's leaving. Mm -hmm. And it's very disconnected as if like this person was never really here and now she's leaving me and I'm sitting here and I'm going to take up smoking while I'm at it, you know, <laughs> which is also, you know, another interesting moment of how he's entering this world because those two are so not on the same page. So. Right. So Mike Nichols, if you've seen his 2004 movie Closer with Natalie Portman, Julia Roberts, Clive Owen. Yep. So that very much... Jude is, Law. Jude Law, yeah. Very much similar to his kind of formula for um, using music. So that movie used Damien Rice um, and kind of put Damien Rice on the map as far as being a popular music artist. Uh, his song Blower's Daughter is featured heavily in that film. And it harkens back to very much the Simon and Garfunkel usage in this film. So again, I think Nichols has this very clear idea of what he wants to be on the screen. And he'll sacrifice plot, he'll sacrifice character believability to make sure that that's what he shows. <laughs> what about Look for This? Are there anything, uh, any other fun facts? Oh, I already used mine with Richard Dreyfuss. I, I'm such a huge fan of his. I was kind of like, haha, look at that. So Mac Nichols is the first director to ever make a million dollars. His contract Ooh. was for a million dollars even. Cha-ching. Yep. I have one, and there's only one. Uh, it's in the scene where Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft first meet in the hotel room. Uh, Hoffman goes to put his hand on her uh, boob, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, <laughs> Bancroft is, like, uh, not expecting this. And Hoffman feels really awkward, and so it makes the director laugh. Mike Nichols is laughing, and then so, in a way, uh, Hoffman goes off, laughs, and then bangs his head on the wall. This is all just a, a, a flub. And Nichols actually kept it in the movie as this is an incredibly awkward, hilarious thing that this guy would do of just like, like, does this work? No? Okay. That was dumb. That was dumb. <laughs> 
we'll move on to how this affects you. Well, I will say, um, so I do identify with Ben at the beginning of the movie. Um, like I said earlier, I definitely lose that identification um, about midway through. But I, as I mentioned in finishing my uh, schooling, I've been in college now for 20 or school now for 24 years of my 32 years in existence so i'm very much in that same mindset of what is next what's happening next um you should play the sound of silence on a loop the sound of silence probably already has been playing in my head for the last four years on a loop um <laughs> so i'm very i very much identify with the coming of age story of of ben i definitely lose that when he treats elaine goes on the date pretty much from that point on i really can't understand why ben is doing what he's doing and why people are reacting to ben the way that they are but i definitely think that anybody can really understand this kind of uncertainty of existence that comes with getting older and knowing what the future will hold i appreciated that but the second act didn't do it for me um his ideas of romance and really there's he claims to it just happens I guess, but he claims that he loves Elaine and, and he's motivated by love, but I, I, I don't think I can point to a single instance of love being depicted by any character and through the whole movie, I don't see love really. Well, fear of going on a tangent, he identifies with her and has a real emotional connection. He's looking for, he knows he doesn't fit and Mrs. Robinson doesn't fit. She doesn't like her life. She doesn't like what she's yes. become. And they identify with each other, but their relationship is strictly physical. Yes. And that is unfulfilling to him. He asks to talk to her. He wants to meet her. And he realizes he wants something more than just only being, you know, as in sexual love. He wants to actually connect with somebody emotionally. And on that first date, that is all of the meaningful relationship that he's had. And he's willing to fight for it and to cling for it. And he wants more of that, even if, even if it's fleeting as it might seem to us. For him, that's the only person who said, like he said, I feel like I'm on a path and I'm a puppet on somebody else's marionette show. Yeah. And she said, I know what you mean. Mm. And like that is what made him so crazy over her. Plus, she's pretty. Yeah, well, that always helps. I guess for my reading is, is a little bit different because I think that he doesn't really start to even entertain the idea of going on a date with Elaine until he's told he can't. That's and true. he doesn't really start to even see Elaine as a person until she starts to cry. So it's not until people start to show their weakness that he starts to say, oh, well, other people experience crises as well. So I guess I can take advantage of, or I can learn, at, at, at the very least, I can learn about how people deal with feeling like an outsider. Hmm. Whereas in the whole beginning half of the film, I think he's just assuming that he is, he's a lone, lone person on an island where... Um, no one can really understand what he's going through. By the second act, I'm like, okay, he's now seeing how everyone has their own imperfections, and now he wants to take advantage of those. Long way back around. The good, good tangent, though. That, 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 that was that, a tangent, that, for that, sure. That, that, that was a good tangent. <laughs> uh, Brian, how did this one affect you? And I'm eager to hear this one. I don't want to really compare these two movies outside of the fact that I felt basically the same way after I finished both. But if this is under the guise of comedy... Like if, if that is the label that they insist on putting on this Which movie. I do not. I do not either. But, but, but go proceed. Apparently they do. Yes. But, and this is funny because Dustin Hoffman was actually in the sequel to this movie, but I felt the same way I did after Meet the Parents. Oh, I love that movie. Where it just seems like all of this crazy bad crap is happening to this guy 
And although in Meet the Parents, it's obviously, you know, they're trying to shift it all as Ben Stiller doing all this. In this, it just seems like Dustin Hoffman is not mentally equipped to deal with what is happening around him. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like he was terrible. I mean, obviously taken advantage of, but really terribly taken advantage of by the end of this movie. And so by the end of it, like it just it was that kind of this was supposed to be funny. I feel horrible like this is not I don't know it when when I read a descriptor of a movie and it says this cringeworthy comedy right then and there, I can be like, I will not like this movie for me. I never really got out of school and just totally felt lost necessarily. I always plan several steps ahead. I usually am very much, I'm going to do this. This is what I want to do. And I want to get to that in order to get to that. I've got to go through this. This is what I want to get to. If I can't do that, then I'll do this. And that fails and I'll take this. And I'm always coming up with a tree of, if, if this doesn't work, I'm going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G to get to ultimately my destination. You and, clearly were not a humanities student, what whatsoever. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I loved my humanities classes. But <laughs> when I graduated, the economy was not as cooperative with my goals, mm. and so I didn't get a job right away in 2008 because the great crash was kicking in. Fry was there with me, and I felt stuck. Uh, where it wasn't what do I want to do? I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to go work in New York, Chicago, or uh, you know somewhere and work for a very high profile architect did really great work and i put out 240 resumes and i got nothing and so then i started looking to smaller cities and other markets and stuff like that and that's how i landed here in pittsburgh life's really great things worked out i'm happy but it getting going was hard and i definitely got a couple of speeches like my dad's like what what are you doing to get a job right now and like what is your plan and you got to do something i think if there's i think if there's really one thing that i could identify with in this movie was what's your plan like i i do think that almost everybody gets that and if it's not everybody it's going to be someone who's probably one of those sure i'll join the company firm yeah i didn't necessarily feel like he did but i thought nichols did an amazing job i'm not an introverted person i'm not somebody who just gets down on myself for so long if something doesn't pan out i'll find the next thing or the thing that gets me the closest to the thing that i want and so i thought it was an interesting journey and a skillful director did a good job of putting me in his mindset even though i just don't see the world that way and i was able to take the ride and and really understand the character uh, because of that and so kudos to Nichols on that one one of my favorite parts of the show the movie superlative time is here mark do you want to kick us off and give us your mvp i will totally not be surprising at all but i'm gonna go with mike nichols i love his directing style um i love that he focuses on small casts he doesn't have a lot of actors in his movies because he doesn't uh he doesn't need them um i love that he had for this film particularly he had his actors memorize their lines before even filming a single scene so that all of the actors knew every single scene or every line before the cameras even rolled and i love that that's kind of his way the film ends up being a product of a longer process um, of working with actors and i think that shows in all of his work and this is no exception yeah brian mvp i'm gonna give it to the uh the film crew the people who actually uh sat through and shot all of this because <laughs> oh gosh the I mean there is souls there is the clearly some, some constitution that was required to uh to do this and uh hats off to him because wow, this is I mean, the first time the key sh- grip ever I got MVP. Say, 
the grip the grip people they need some love uh, but yeah it's uh i mean especially if you got one guy screaming behind you and right. i'm getting really afraid for the five star scale I mean, <laughs> we're building Train wreck yeah, and, I, I know where this is going I'm and i'm afraid scared. uh dustin hoffman good. dustin hoffman's my mvp and uh i love the awkward nature that he exhibits particularly in the first part of the movie and even in the second part of the movie which i will agree is not as strong i like his frantic nature mm-hmm. and so Again, part of me being pulled into this character that I do not relate to, but being able to truly understand, empathize with, and be able to get to understand, I think Hoffman had a lot to do with that. So, uh, best supporting actor, Mark. I have to go with Anne Bancroft. Um, I think she was the hero of the film. I think Mrs. Robinson is the hero of the of the narrative. I totally um, felt for her when we find out more about her backstory, and I think that she did a great job of. Um, being seductive um yeah i hero no question hero she was the poor mrs robinson she went through so much and um i mean she was ultimately ben whatever 30 years before i guess 20 years before if we're using actual time yeah so mrs robinson absolutely huh and bancroft i took her to be a villain because she's just she knows that her husband wants to set her uh, these her, her her child up with ben and she knows this ahead of time, and so she's just having an affair with him to keep him away from ever meeting her daughter. It's very, it's very manipulative. But you don't and think once you learn that she had, she got trapped in this marriage because she ended up being pregnant with Elaine. I guess the, her methods of going about it are just so. So fair. I mean, she wrecked her whole family, that's and fair. it's a long way to go around to to keep your daughter from seeing this guy, and it didn't work in the end no, anyway. And it's so, a bad plan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I go villain on that one. Okay. That, that's interesting. But she's, I, I thought Anne Bancroft did a great job with the role. Brian, oh, quick, real quick, hero or villain for Mrs. Robinson? Uh, I'm going to go with villain on that ah. one. Okay. It's all right. All right. Best supporting oh. actor, Brian. I'm going to go with uh, Ben's dad just for being able to sport that mustache. He was really good at being really over the top, like sickening. Like he like, genuinely seemed proud and excited to show off his son. But but it was sickening. Absolutely. Good yeah. good call. I'm going to go with uh, Elaine Robinson, Karen Ross. Uh, she was... Catherine. Yeah, Catherine Ross. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, she was just great. She has to come in and captivate you right away. You have to fall in love with this character really quick. Really and quick, and yeah. this is somebody who's going to carry you through the rest of the movie to be like, she's worth getting. And I thought she did a good job of that. Mm-hmm. Hidden gem. Mark. Um, so I'm going to kind of piggyback here a little bit. I, I said William Daniels, Mr. Braddock. I knew he looked familiar. And upon researching, Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. Oh, really? oh nice. Good. I didn't think How about crazy that. is that? I had no nice. idea. Um, but I knew he looked familiar, but yeah, I, I really thought he did a great job. I love their scene at the beginning where he first gets to the party and they're in the room together and kind of having a heart to heart and then something switches and, and, and the dad just goes back to his mundane kind of, I don't care what you really feel Brian. mentality. I thought that was a good transition. Yeah. Brian, head and Jim. Uh, I'm going to stick with uh, Buck Henry on this one, um, yes. just because I'm, I'm a big fan of him. Uh, actor, producer, director. Apparently not writer. Writer. <laughs> well, 
Hey, listen, I've got I've got favorite directors that direct things where I'm like, oh, why did yeah? You know, you're doing like the Peter Griffin knee grab. You're like, ah, why? This is a springboard for Buck Henry as well. It's it, it, it's Hoffman, Nichols, and Henry all get the boost from this. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm with you, Fry. I'm I really like Buck Henry in this one. His comedic elements. He makes a lot of a small role. His character doesn't mm-hmm. even have a name. He's room clerk, <laughs> and uh, he's highly memorable. Yeah. Recast, and this is an older movie, so you can take this a couple of ways if you want to. But uh, I, I, I try to get somebody from the era. But uh, I also am always intrigued if you were going to redo it when it's an older movie. Mark, what? How did you take this uh, recast? So I wanted to recast Elaine. Um, I thought Catherine Ross was good, but I thought she could have done a little bit more with the role. If I'm thinking about the time period. I really like Sandy Dennis, who is a lesser-known actress, but she was in Mike Nichols' first movie called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, and she was kind of the young, plucky blonde in that movie. I think that she would have done great with this role. For more contemporary, I would. Um, I actually really think... I was going back and forth between either Aubrey Plaza or Mindy Kaling, because I think they both have this sort of whininess quality about them that's endearing and i think um, elaine had a little bit of that whininess to her that kind of stood out to me interesting brian if you had to recast somebody in this who would it be i think i know where this is going i didn't have a whole lot of recast in terms of period specific um i had more modern time that's a lot um i thought if you were going to recast uh mrs robinson i would have gone with like renee russo Oh. Or Catherine Seda Jones, I think they both Ooh. play sul- sultry very well. Yeah, I like your recast better than mine. I I think they could both, you know, they pull off that old but still sexy. Mm-hmm. You know, there's I think that would be where I'd go with it. And then I was also toying around with if you were going to make this movie comedy ridiculous. But you could on... easily, like you could take the same yeah, script absolutely. premise and go a whole another. Di- you could make a completely different movie out of the same script. I would absolutely put um, Andy Sandberg in as uh, Dustin Hoffman's character. <laughs> I want to see this movie. As, as soon as he has sex with Catherine Zeta-Jones and he's laying in the pool, it's, I just had sex. <laughs> oh, I, I want this movie now. Yeah, I'm um, ready for it. <laughs> those are great choices. I'm going to invert with Mark. He, he, he recasted my uh, favorite supporting actor, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. recast his favorite supporting <laughs> exactly. actor. And Bancroft, and perhaps due to age, is and this is me just not being fair. Uh, I thought she just was a little bit too young to play the part. Um, Lauren Bacall is somebody from How to Marry a Millionaire. Um, I think that she's confident. She's got this deep, uh, husky voice that's very sexy, and that uh, she was older. Uh, and she's actually got a gap in her filming at this time i can see why she wanted to take this role it would have been good for her i think it would have been good for the movie uh she's not in another movie for like four years until murder on the orient express so uh, this would have been a nice place to uh insert her into her career and on the note that brian said um if i were to make this movie today lena Hetty was the person who I thought I'd like to put in this i'm not a game of thrones watcher i know you both are yes. is is this a good direction to go in because you've gotten larger doses of her i've gotten smaller doses but i i sense that she's got a toughness about her that and uh mm. that would give her the confidence to be mrs robinson she strikes me as somebody who can be in control yes the last three movies that i have seen her in have been 
well, I shouldn't say just movies. So Game of Thrones, obviously, Terminator, and Dread. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a really hard time putting her in a domestic anything. Okay. I, the, the, but that toughness to me says confident, strong oh, woman you. who's going to say, like, mm-hmm. you, young man, I want you. Mm-hmm. And that, that to me, I needed somebody strong to do that. Somebody else I considered for it was Famke Jansen. Oh, mm. I see um, that. Interesting. I like those. Best shot. Uh, Mark. So I think I already spoiled this already, but definitely the sequence in the scuba suit, um, not necessarily in the pool, but the scene that we're contained within from the point of view, I guess, of of Ben within the suit. I just love the sound and how that kind of worked together and how it kind of shut out the world. That was my favorite. That's a good one. Brian. I'll ditto that. I, I like that. Either that or the, the very end scene on the bus. Mm-hmm. Those are great choices. I'm glad you brought them up because I was kind of teeter-tottering between two and I, being that you guys took one, I'm going to actually, I'm going to go with the iconic shot that Mrs. Robinson has her leg propped up on the chair. She's being very flirtatious mm-hmm. with him, even though she says she's not. That's a lot. <laughs> and uh, the camera it takes a low angle. It goes under her leg and mm-hmm. frames Dustin Hoffman's face. And he goes, uh, you know, and he says, and I'm going to go ahead and spoil this. is definitely my favorite quote. of like, Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. Aren't you? <laughs> great line, great shot. Mm-hmm. That is the image of this movie to me. Like this is the back of the box image. Her legs did get quite a quite a billing. They feel like they should get their own. You know when they own... actually do the cover and the legs mm-hmm. on the cover? That's not her leg from the movie. That's 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 a uh, Linda Gray, I believe, mm-hmm. is the name of the model's leg. So they had those are those are stunt legs. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, best scene. So I chose seen um, the first seduction of Mrs. Robinson and Ben in his bedroom. Um, I thought that was done really well. Um, I It was hard for me to kind of understand how he didn't know he was being seduced and that kind of back and forth um, are you, aren't you? I think, he, I think he said several times, he's like, he's like, this is getting pretty funny. Or like, yeah. I don't think this would go well. And... Right. But I thought that their, their rapport in that scene was really, really solid. Um, and it shows that they had been working together for a while. Yeah, um, that's a great one. Brian? You know what? I'm going to go with Fish Tank just because of the allusion to the future. I, I'll even go with anything that really alludes to something that happens later in the the movie just because I do enjoy when they put those little tidbits in. And I like it even better when I have to really sort through them and remember or – catch it and think, ooh, I wonder. Uh, anytime that it gives me that sort of uh, Gratification the chance second time around. To, well, yeah, it's like, oh, I thought that might have been important. You know, it, I like those little reminders that, hey, were you paying attention? Mm-hmm. I actually picked Marx as well, and he said it very wisely, but I am also going to give a nod for best scene. Uh, so a runner-up would be the scene of the party when Ben comes out. We get the sad clown. Everybody's face is out of frame. We talked about it the whole time before. You definitely get the plastics line. Mm-hmm. This is this shows you the world that Ben's in that he doesn't sure how he fits, and it gets you the feeling. This it's one of the, it's some excellent camera work. It sets up the movie perfectly. And so I'm just going to give a runner-up to that. I do pick the Mrs. Robinson seduction at the Robinson's house mm-hmm. after they get home. What about that really aggressive voiceover in the party where they're reading his accomplishments out of the yearbook and mm-hmm. then finally when he closes the door, it kind of gets silent. That was, that, was, that was up there for me as well. Mm-hmm. Love that very intentional voiceover. This is where we call to change one thing. If you're Mike Nichols, what one thing do you change? And it can only be one, Brian. 
but uh, what one thing do you change, Mark? I would, oh man, I would have Ben's realization that he apparently loves Elaine not be when she cries, because <laughs> that just ruined all of his ethos for me, <laughs> because it just, as I already mentioned, felt very much a vulnerable point for her, and he kind of jumped on it. So I feel I'll like I would have I would have liked him to come to that realization a little bit differently. <laughs> I, I have a similar thing, but uh, very closely related. Brian, change one thing. I'm going to recuse myself from this. <laughs> <laughs> the list is too long. He's already gotten I, on the burn I, list. I'll just, you know, I'll just solidify. I had a rough time with this one, and I'm not sorry I watched it, but... You know, I, I actually hope that I have an experience like you did, Russ. I hope that one day I give it another shot and I'm like, wow. Come back 10 years later. Yeah, you know, let it let it mull over for a bit. Maybe I go into it a little lighter, harder, more you lighthearted. You did exactly than I did what I did. I, thought, I was like, this is one of the top 10 comedies of all time. And I, I just, I don't know. It just, it hit me off guard and... I, I hope to like it one day. I'll I'll <laughs> give you a, a different movie that this really happened for me. Was uh, I saw Lost in Translation, also billed as a comedy. Oh, I hate that movie. Oh, I love that movie. In college, and I showed that in my, my class this semester as well. Oh. My wife and I went to see it. Girlfriend at the time, now wife, went to see it. Um, it was the definition of purgatory. I don't know that I can do it again. I didn't dislike it. I didn't like it. I just wasn't really sure what happened during that hour and 40 minutes. It seemed like it was four hours. <laughs> I went back and watched it again. I was probably maybe two years ago and blew me away. I was like, look, I wasn't old enough to appreciate that the way I needed to. I, again, went into it with a different frame of mind. I was thinking Bill Murray this is going to be hilarious, you know, guy kind of on the, the outs with uh, disillusioned with life. This is going to be great. And I went into it the wrong way. So maybe what The Graduate isn't doing for people that aren't familiar is it's it's bringing people in the wrong way. Yeah, that's fair. I went into the, I went into uh, Lost in Translation probably wanting What About Bob, hmm. and I didn't get What About Bob. And I probably went into The Graduate the first time. Wanting What About Bob, too, and I didn't get What About Bob. So I, I, I left disappointed in both of those. I haven't gone back to Lost in Translation. Maybe someday I will. If my students are listening, which they very well might be. <laughs> I hope so. Um, they will very much agree with you. They hated it. <laughs> and that was one of the ones that I enjoyed conversing about. Yeah. I, I wanted Bill Murray to get his Oscar when he got nominated just because I like Bill Murray. But oh, it was one like, of my favorite performances ever, acting performances, Bill Murray in that movie, it's hands like, down. It's like Van Gogh's got this like portrait of an old sailor. Like every, it's like super high priced, and like he's a great artist. I love him, but I hate that painting. And it's just like one of those things where everyone's like, "This one's great." And I'm like, "Sure, if it does it for you, then I'm glad you like that artist. I like." But that is that one's the, that one's a miss for me. Uh, well, I'll tell you to, to to all of your students who are listening to this. Go back and watch it 10 years later. I didn't get it as a student either. It will be more meaningful to you later on down the road. Okay. I appreciate that. My change one thing would be uh, to make Benjamin a little less stalker-like, a little more <laughs> likable, somebody who has to win her over. So like Brian said, you're going from, you raped my mom, oh, you didn't, right. uh, to... 
<laughs> I had fun. Well, when uh, you put it that way, we should definitely run off together. <laughs> well, like, I, okay, I will see you again, but I'm not going to dump Carl. And, like, right. okay, you can come, but, you you know, like, I'm not dumping Carl. And then, like, okay, like, maybe I'll marry you. I, I, I don't know where I stand with this Carl guy. Some degree of transition. They show you a lot of scenes. Like, they're in the library. They're mm-hmm. on the basketball court. And the whole time, it just seems like... The, his approach is be, will you marry me? No. Will you marry me? No. Will you marry me? No. Will you marry me? And then one day she goes, yeah. fine, I'll marry you. Will you stop asking me that? Yeah. <laughs> there are so many alternative ways of doing this story. I think, like, what if they had actually had the dinner where the Robinsons came over to the Braddocks and they're having this interaction and I would have loved to see that. It Man, amazing. I want to see that scene. Because his parents don't know. Like, no, Ben's yeah. parents Elaine don't Elaine wouldn't know. have known at that point either. Just the two of them would have oh, known. Man, would have been I, would, amazing. I would love a dinner scene like that. So cringeworthy. Brian would hate So it. much better than the actual date that they <laughs> yeah. went on. Maybe that's what I want. I, I, would, have, I would have melted into my chair. <laughs> yes. Like Alex Mack style. <laughs> Oh man, there are people who listen to this that don't know what you're talking about, oh, but I do. My students will not oh, know, know what that is. <laughs> I got it. I like it. For all you latter millennials out there, right. Alex Mack, look it up. Mm-hmm. Best quote time, guys. I'm going to say when he's in the pool, uh, when he says, I would say that I'm just drifting, and well, it's very comfortable just to drift here. It's my favorite. Mm. I know I'd do that if I could. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing from it's that. It's just a toothbrush. Yeah. It's a toothbrush. <laughs> I just got my toothbrush. <laughs> One last thing for that, Dad. Who who gives who on earth says he's like, I think you need to get out there and spread the seed around. Right. By the way, have you met my daughter? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Those two lines don't go together. <laughs> Speaking of which, I'm sorry, real quick. The mom. <laughs> Most tangents There's on any episode a scene ever. <laughs> the mom. There's literally a scene where she's in his room in a nighty. And I'm like, no wonder this kid's confused. Like, what's going on? No. That's true. Also true. Uh, Brian, best quote of the movie? Uh, it's my toothbrush. Okay, the toothbrush. Okay. Toothbrush. It's just a toothbrush. I did like that a lot. <laughs> that was I got good. my toothbrush. And, the, and he came back to tell, that was the most ridiculous thing. Oh, yeah. Like, I have to reiterate just to make sure my story is valid to <laughs> Definitely you. Definitely not an affair. It's a toothbrush. <laughs> what? It's not sex with a married woman. Oh it's a toothbrush. Gosh. Oh, man. Um, Could you not write in your log that's in front of you, uh, sex with a married woman? It was this toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> he ripped, he writes down his name on the on the log, rips it off and writes he it, puts it in his pocket, and writes a bullcrap <laughs> like, like name in there, like he's like Gladstone. Um, I. Th- I think I would have had more fun with this movie watching it with people that we could make fun of it as we were watching it. (laughs) It would have been a more enjoyable. I'm having more fun rethinking about this movie, laughing about it with you guys. And I did at all. Come to Pittsburgh, we'll do it all again. Absolutely, we'll, we'll give do, it. We'll do a live, a live, a live stream of our rewatch. Mystery Science Theater style. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so my best quote is: I already mentioned it is Mrs. Robinson. Are you trying to seduce me? Aren't you? Plastics. Um, Gotta say plastics. Okay. Yeah. That that's that's a okay. big one for a lot of people. It didn't make the impact on well, me. One of my uh, one of my uh, look for this was the plastic industry actually boomed after this movie. Like there, there was there's a big a, future. There's a clear <laughs> uptick in plastic production. So think about it. Yeah. That's, that's all I'm asking. <laughs> uh, it's time to give our five star rating. Yeah, I would have given this a five star after my first time, but it's down to four. Um, I just could not. Oh, skip the four and a half. And I it went got, all the way down to four. I went down to four. Skip four and a half. That second act just was too much for me. I, 
I couldn't get over the privilege of Ben and how he just ruined the second act for me. Okay. But four out of five is good. I you love. Know, you know, I would watch the the first act as a full length feature by itself. Ebert easily. initially said the same thing that you said. He did. You're saying right he now. Didn't. Although he went back many years later and said I was wrong. Yeah. But like. I don't know. So when you get to be a lot older, like Ebert, uh, maybe yeah. maybe you'll be like, "What was I thinking? <laughs> that was on that was on record." Four out of five, though. That's not bad. I still really love the movie. But Brian, this is where the moment of truth is. I am going to give it a firm two. Oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought. No, an earmark it for future evaluation, <laughs> just because I I am a, I am a believer that you can go back and watch something at a different time in your life and see something different entirely. And uh, I, I'm going to go with two right now just because it's fresh, it's raw, and I didn't like it. But uh, I want to give it hope for, for a redemptive uh, pass next time. I'll I, take it. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll sold. <laughs> yeah. After the journey we went through, I, I don't think I'll... Uh, I'm going to go with four and a half stars. Uh, I have all the same complaints that Mark does. I think I like the things that I like a little bit more. Uh, maybe I'm just coming off of the high of like, I like this movie now. <laughs> um, so... Uh, it's not perfect. Nichols could do a better job transforming characters uh, and getting into the relationships of the people. That's not what he cares about in this movie anyway. But, you know, he's really good at getting you into the head of the protagonist. And that's that's the strength of this movie. Next time, Brian, are you ready to help me pick a movie for next time? Absolutely. Option one. It's going to be Christmas time, you know, by the way. So I think we need something a little bit holly jolly to bring in the Christmas spirit and to uh, lift your spirits, especially you had a you had a rough week this week. So option one: Home Alone, an eight-year-old troublemaker must protect his house from a pair of burglars when he is accidentally left at home alone by his parents during a Christmas vacation. Option two: National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, 1989. The Griswold family's back, and they plan for a big family Christmas, predictably turning into a big disaster. Option three: It's a Wonderful Life. An angel is sent from heaven to help desperately frustrated businessmen by showing him what life would be like if he had never existed at all. And that's from 1946. Well, I'll tell you what, I have not seen it in 100 years, so I'm going to go with Home Alone. Ah! Classic. Which I have still never had that experience with Aftershave. I do it every morning. (laughs) No, I don't. (laughs) No, that sounds great. Um, I'm looking forward to that one. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. We had some technical difficulties. It's a slow start, but you were awesome. Thanks yeah. for coming in there. Thank and you for having me. Look forward to hearing future episodes. Yes, and Brian, thank you for coming on. Contrast is always good. I love that you brought a whole nother... I was in your shoes 10 years ago. So, um, <laughs> my you filled pleasure. the role of my students at very well today. So I appreciate. I would have filled the role of your students when <laughs> I, I was I, the I, age I, of being I, one of your students. So, um, I, I probably still have the mindset of a student. So. You can tell them when they're when they're thirty three years old. You're gonna like this movie when you're thirty three years old. <laughs> oh, I would not say that. To them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, don't say uh, that then. But thank you, Mark. Thank you, Brian. It's been a good show. Thank little, you. And uh, we'll see everybody again to all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to like us on Facebook. Reach out. We like you to engage. Tell us what you thought of the movie. Also, you can reach out to us on Retro Movie Roundtable at yahoo.com. Please give us a like and a subscription and rate it, a five-star rating and review on iTunes. We really appreciate that because that's what helps us the show get found by other people. That's what helps the show grow. And we do a better job of making the show when we get that feedback. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian. 
This wasn't my original quote for the end of this, but because it came up, I couldn't resist. For relaxing times, make it suntory time. <laughs>